Welcome to White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini-pod. Delivered in short doses, this mini-podcast features informal, on-topic discussions with in-house experts, outside counsel, and other thought leaders on a wide array of cutting-edge and practical white-collar and compliance topics. Visit PerkinsCoie.com for more information on our nationally ranked white-collar and investigations practice. On this episode of White Collar Briefly, Perkins Coie's David Bitterman, firm-wide chair of the Consumer Products and Services Litigation Group, speaks with Craig Lackey, general counsel of Rushmore Mortgage Servicing, a major servicer of residential mortgages nationwide. Topics discussed include mortgage servicer responses to COVID-19 and the CARES Act, as well as what to expect in terms of likely enforcement priorities related to mortgage servicing in the COVID-19 era, and how best to respond. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Perkins Coie LLP and should not be considered legal advice. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is David Bitterman. I'm a guest host here on the uh, White Collar podcast of Perkins Coie. Today, we've got a phenomenal guest, Craig Lackey, who is the current general counsel of Rushmore Loan Management. Have I got that right, Craig? Crushmore yes, you do, Loan. David. Exactly. All right. Thanks. And uh, Craig has previously been general counsel of Caliber, two major and significant uh, loan servicing companies. But really, the most important part is that Craig has, goes back about 36 years in the financial services industry and goes back through a lot of ups and downs in that industry. Uh, We're going through a lot right now, but I think as Craig is going to tell you, this is not unique to the industry. It's almost a sort of part of the uh, ecosystem. And uh, I'm a I'm a lawyer here in uh, California. I represent financial services companies and we're ready to go. Craig, welcome. David, thanks for having me. I appreciate it very much. And you know, when I was I was listening to your comments, it, it reminded me of something that I always find amusing. And that's when you talk to a young lawyer and either in a law firm or in an in-house position who's been doing it for less than 10 years. And they're so stunned that there is an economic turndown that has a significant impact on the industry. Because the reality is about, at least in my experience, about every 10 years, you see a very significant turndown. And they vary in levels. I think in my career so far, the most severe was the 2009, 2010. But you know, there was a very significant one in 1989, which was a combination of oil price drops causing serious problems to the real estate markets in Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, Colorado, coupled with a significant downturn in housing prices in the tri-state area up in Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey, which in both cases led to a significant recession, which had a major impact on all consumer lenders, particularly consumer mortgage lenders. So these things happen and they're, they're, they're very predictable. And you know, unfortunately, out of all of them, there comes a significant amount of litigation and a significant amount of investigations and enforcement actions and similar things. And I think this one that we're in now will be no different. Perhaps it won't be as severe as the last one, perhaps it'll be more severe, but that's just something that's to be expected given, you know, the, the, the nature of the economy and the impact on individuals who own homes or cars or other things that may have financed and how that leads regulators or uh, civil litigants to uh, try to get some kind of a resolution. Yeah, you always think this is the the, the one time it can happen. It's like it's like uh, Ralph Simpson. His son says, "Dad, this is the worst day of my life." And Simpson <laughs> says, "The worst day of your life yet." <laughs> <laughs> well, and, I got to tell you, back in 1989, I mean, it was pretty bad. I think a lot of people have forgotten that, and it was it would get it was regionalized, but the regional nature of it was enough areas that had significant turndowns that it affected the entire economy, and ultimately, it ended up affecting a presidential election. And you know, made some made some significant changes to the landscape of things. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That was the year. Of the, it's the economy, stupid, right? That was that. Yeah, year. I think it was actually maybe ninety two, but yeah, it was instrumental. I think that downturn in H W Bush's not getting a second term and Bill Clinton being elected. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Well, listen, hey, before we talk about that, let's talk about you. <laughs> You're our guest. So I want to go back to like day one, Craig Lackey. Where were you born? What, what, you got a great family history. I want to hear about a little bit about your family history, how you found your way to the legal profession, and then how you found your way to the uh, 
to the financial services area of, of law. Sure, David. I mean, my family uh, for many generations was in that part of uh, the country where Missouri, Illinois, and Kentucky all come together. I was actually born in Tennessee, but grew up in St. Louis. You know, I had kind of a different childhood. We were somewhat affluent. And then unfortunately, my father passed away when I was very young and we were not affluent. And that had a big impact on me in a lot of ways. And, and it really, it made me want to do something to empower myself. And and frankly, I became very interested in consumer advocacy. And in college, you know, I, I worked with uh, something called MOPERG, which is the Missouri Public Interest Resource Group. They had a chapter that was founded at St. Louis University, where I went to college. And, you know, I got very engaged in, in that kind of activity. Now, when I, I went to law school a few blocks away at Washington University in St. Louis, and uh, after working at a law firm, I started working at Citicorp Mortgage. And, you know, being a practical person who had to, you know, go to law school the old fashioned way, I borrowed the money. You know, the Citicorp offered me about three times what Moperg was offering me. So I guess uh, I, made a, I made a course direction change at that point. And that's the direction I've been ever since. And I ended up practicing at Citicorp for several years, again, until that 1989-1990 downturn. And, uh, you know, as a consequence, left St. Louis and moved to Texas. And I've worked at, worked for a number of years at, you know, different size organizations, typically larger banks until about, you know, 15 years ago. But, you know, in, in positions of increasing responsibility, I ended up spending nine years at Countrywide in a senior position there. And, you know, since then, I've discovered the benefit of working at a at smaller companies. So it's been sort of a typical internal counsel kind of a of a career path. And, you know, I, I was, as you said, I was a, it was a caliber. And now I'm at uh, Rushmore Loan Management. So... That's sort of the direction of my career. So very different. If you if you talk to the Craig Lackey in you know 1981 when I was in college, and you told him I would be the general counsel of a mortgage company, I would say that you're insane. I'm going to be the next Ralph Nader, and I just guess it just goes shows to show that uh, people's lives go in different directions they expect. Yeah, it does. It, yeah, that's true for most of us, I guess. <laughs> well, there's a joke that nobody intentionally goes into banking or consumer lending. It's something you sort of fall into. I don't know if that's true exactly, but it certainly seems to have worked out that way in my uh, career. Yeah. Yeah. So, Craig, your career goes back to cover a number of significant events. But, you know, among others, you were there at Countrywide in 2008 when they were Darth Vader of the lending community. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, uh, Angela Mozilla was at the before the crash probably considered the most esteemed mortgage banker in mortgage banking history. I mean, he was on CNBC. He was beloved. I, I, I knew him well. He was he was always uh, uh, seemed to me to be a great person, but he became the pariah of the industry overnight. And it's really fascinating. And you still will occasionally hear people who are you know very progressive that will point to him and say, we still need more improvements in the system because Angela Mazul didn't go to jail. Well, nobody went to jail, but it's sort of a, you know, that that juxtaposition for being the greatest company in the world to being, you know, the biggest pariah in the history of financial institutions in the United States, it was fascinating. And, and I think I didn't realize how much it had changed until after I, I had left, after Bank of America closed their deal acquiring uh, Countrywide. Well, that's sort of relevant to what we're going to talk about today. For uh, our audience, you know, obviously, maybe just give a quick overview about the financial services industry, because it's got to be one of the most regulated industries in, in the country, if not the most. And it's one where there's both state enforcement, federal enforcement, all kinds of agency enforcement. Uh, uh, maybe a quick overview of that so our listeners understand the relevance to them. Well, let's separate out uh, banks and bank type bank entities because bank and bank type entities typically have a national charter. They're regulated by the federal government. They have some regulation by states, but it's somewhat dissimilar from state licensed mortgage lenders, which, you know, after the last crash, that, those groups sort of fell into savor, but they've made significant inroads coming back and they're now a significant portion of the residential mortgage market in the United States. And essentially, if you are, for example, a company that makes loans and then also services loans, 
you will typically uh, have a, a license, in, in some cases, multiple licenses in every state. You have, for example, servicers. There are some municipalities like the uh, city of New York that has a debt collector license you're required to get. And so you'll have this patchwork of licenses, which are administered through something called the NMLS system. The NMLS system came out of the last crash, and it was something that was designed to to, to have a more effective uh, state regulation of, of consumer lenders, and also to uh, ensure that bad apples, let's say, don't get to do something in, improper in one state, move to the next state, and then take up and become a licensed person and continue to do this work. And then you've also got various federal agencies. The most significant one for state licensed mortgage lenders and servicers is the CFPB. But there's also other states that have some level of authority over at least the, perhaps the laws or perhaps direct regulation, although the, the primary one is the CFPB. And the CFPB is really, at least I think of it this way, and I don't know if they would agree, but I think of it as one group that is a policy group that makes uh, interpretive regulations and, and comments and things like that with regard to federal laws. The next group is one that does examinations over people that are in the business of making and servicing loans. And there are some, you know, limited exceptions for very, very small entities and for certain classes of banks that the CFPB is not involved in. But the third part is enforcement, which are the people who bring actions or claims to try to make certain, to identify mortgage lenders that are not complying with the law and uh, punish them or force them to come back in compliance with the law. So, Craig, you, you mentioned this, and, and I think it's really relevant to what we're going to talk about uh, in just a few minutes, which is, you know, the one comment that's always made about the 2008 financial crisis is that nobody went to jail. All these people lost their homes, their lives are ruined, and people on Wall Street and people in the financial industry made a lot of money, and nobody went to jail. And we're, we're going to witness something similar, I think, with COVID and the accompanying downturn in the economy and the loss of jobs. And it's already having an impact on the financial institutions. And what do you think that's going to do in terms of regulatory enforcement? Do you think regulatory enforcement is going to be informed by those kinds of comments and the, the thought that uh, regulatory enforcement was too weak in the past? And uh, as things come, come forward, things will be changing? Yeah. So before I answer that, I should probably say that as a general disclaimer that the comments I'm making today throughout this podcast are my own personal opinions. They're not the opinions of Rushmore, and I'm not here talking on behalf of Rushmore. But with that said, yes, 100%. I mean, I think in part it's because people's views of what is deserving you know, criminal, criminal punishment or more severe regulatory actions is something that's evolving. Now, if you go back, David, to the what I refer to as the uh, oil bust, but it's also sometimes called the savings and loan crisis, there were people that went to jail, literally. In most cases, the people who went to jail were people who played fast and loose between the balance sheet of a of a national savings and loan or small bank that was insured by the FDIC and a subsidiary that made mortgage loans or was a builder or developer of some kind. And the, the people that you think back to that period that went to jail were typically people who were creating a loss for the federal government, potentially through uh, losses in depositors' money that had to be made up by the feds. And you know, I've never gone back. I remember living through it. I've never gone back and really done an analysis of, of how many of those institutions were bailed out by the Fed and, and depositors had to have deposits made whole because of that. But that's an example of a very specific kind of thing that the government doesn't like. The doesn't, government doesn't like something that it views as taking its money away. And this the next crisis was a little bit different. And when it broke, the laws that existed, you know, it, they, they didn't really necessarily have criminal penalties associated with them because they were different kinds of violations. I will tell you this, my my general observation is that the government is very keenly interested in how anybody in a financial institution, whether it's how you're giving service to customers while you're not able to have your, your offices open, or how you're managing people who are in a crisis and need help, they're very keenly interested in that. And they are uh, all over mortgage uh, lenders, mortgage servicers, and I'm assuming other consumer lenders, um, inquiring about what they're doing in these times and what they're doing to try to help. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's naturally going to lead to investigations once this thing gets a little bit further on. 
And also, it's going to lead to potentially uh, enforcement actions of of one kind or another. Now, is somebody going to be sent to jail for this? Well, that's that's not something we can even predict. But are there going to be enforcement actions? Of course. And I think it's likely, and again, my personal opinion, not the opinion of my client, but I, I think that there's going to be an increase in litigation as a result of this as well. Yeah, private consumer litigation, you mean. That's right. I mean, if you think about it, David, you know, I think back, you know, and I've managed litigation for a number of years now. And I really believe that the 2000, let's call it 2008 to 2010 or so crisis, I think that that it was so large and so significant and it threw off so much litigation that it essentially allowed a a whole generation of, of plaintiff's lawyers to be educated on how to bring claims, how to bring defensive claims and foreclosures, how to bring affirmative claims because of either perceived uh, misconduct by a mortgage lender or servicer. And I, so I think you've already, you don't have a learning curve for those folks. They're, they're ready to bring claims. And I think, um, you know, there's a very good chance that they will bring claims. Yeah, and speaking of claims, why don't you give our audience an overview of what's going on right now? I mean, people can't pay their mortgages. A lot of people can't pay their mortgages, and, and there's been some legislation and some regulatory activity. And if you give an overview for our team about what you're seeing right now and how you guys at Rushmore and how the industry in general is responding to this crisis. Well, I'll, I'll answer with respect to the industry. I don't want to stay, again, I want to stay away from saying anything specific about Rushmore. But, you know, David, it, it is a really significant patchwork of things. I mean, there's the CARES Act, and everybody hears about the CARES Act. But the CARES Act is basically limited to, you know, Fannie, Freddie, and Ginny loans, right? Government uh, insured or government invest- investment loans. It doesn't apply to private investment loans or loans that are that have been bought out of a Ginny pool or, or uh, have been sold out of Fannie or Freddie pool or loans that were just never sold to Fannie in the first place. So, you know, the CARES Act has a specific requirement. It allows people to get a, up to a, you know, a 90-day, 180-day, you know, with with uh, 90-day increments thereafter forbearance on their loan. But the, the one of the problems with that that's going to come up is... In other words, if you say forbearance, I mean, you don't have to pay your loan, right? What I think Congress really meant when they passed that was a deferral. And a deferral is not the same thing as a forbearance. A forbearance says, David, you don't have to make your loan payment for the next six months. But the problem with that is it's a term of art. And the common understanding, at least the understanding that I've always had and that that I think is the, the common understanding is forbearance means I'm going to forbear collection of the payment for now. But if I give you a 90-day forbearance, and in 90 days, you don't get another 90-day forbearance, which you're entitled to as a matter of right, but regardless, then in theory, you would have to pay that entire, all the payments that accrued during the 90-day forbearance plus the currently due payment, and very few people can do that. What I think they meant, and what I've seen come out of the VA, for example, and Fannie and Freddie and the FHFA, is much more like a deferral. A deferral is different than a forbearance. A deferral says, okay, David, you can't make your next three payments, so we're gonna tack them on at the end of your loan, or you can pay them when you pay off the loan or when you sell the property, right? And so I, I think that that's an example of the kind of confusion I think that's gonna come out. Now, there's a lot of guidance that's come out for various agencies about how to handle when these payments come due. I mean, like I said, the VA and and the FHA have come out with comments. The uh, FHFA, I believe Fannie and Freddie have as well. So there's, there's guidance on this, but there's gonna be areas where things were passed on a hasty basis. And as a consequence, you know, the the clarity may not necessarily be there to start with. And that's where the litigation, I think, is going to be a problem. It's also worth noting that states are doing all sorts of different things. And you've got executive orders. You've got some state legislatures passing requirements. You have some executive orders that say, we recommend you don't do a foreclosure. You have other states that are saying you can't do a foreclosure. You can't do an eviction. You have some states that say you can't do a foreclosure sale, but they don't say anything about advancing, otherwise advancing a foreclosure. You have other states that say you can't do anything to advance a foreclosure in any way. It is such a patchwork that I, I think it, it, it's very difficult to keep track of everything. And as a consequence, you know, if they recommend that you don't do something, well, you know, if somebody sues you saying we recommend means you shouldn't, what's going to happen? You know, and so I think that all of those kind of things are going to have to be sorted out. 
And who do you think is going to be the agency that's going to enforce all this? Because once this uh, this stops, uh, once once this train stops and people do have to start paying back their loans, uh, there's going to be all kinds of different ways that those deferred fees are going to be, deferred payments are going to be collected. Who's going to be the enforcement agency for that, for you guys? I think this, the, the CFPB will be, and I think you'll also have states. I mean, you have states that are, I wouldn't call it doing a, a review or an exam, but they're they're inquiring as to how you plan to handle things and how you're going to handle things. And I think they're going to have a really strong view of that. And, and look, it's a practical matter. If everybody that goes on a forbearance suddenly had to immediately make, let's say you go on a six-month or a year forbearance, and you suddenly have to cure that default, all that would happen would be you'd have an enormous spike in foreclosures. Well, that'll adversely affect real estate values and harm everybody. So I don't think anybody wants that. It's But it's just really a question about balancing the equities between you know, the borrowers and the investors that hold the uh, uh, that hold the mortgages. And what are you doing for the non-government loans? Isn't the, the essentially the thought that, hey, listen, if you can do it for these government loans, why can't you do it for me? I think a lot of people are doing that, David. I think a lot of people do just say, you know what, we're going to adopt the same standard as Fannie, Freddie, Jenny, right? I think they're, and, and that's typically governed by the owner of the of the loan. And so I, I think there are maybe a few who are taking more aggressive positions, which, you know, will It'll be interesting. We should have a podcast in about uh, 12, 18 months and talk about how that strategy worked for them. You know, one of the key things, you know, and again, many years of doing this is if you want to avoid significant liability and and let's be honest, David, I mean, you know, if if you are the beneficiary of a either a federal or state investigation, even if you manage to get out of it without paying uh, some sort of a penalty, nonetheless, you still pay a penalty because it's extraordinarily time-consuming and expensive to deal with. And the more you know serious it is, the more expensive it is to deal with. So if you you know sort of follow the golden rule with regards to your customers and treat them fairly, and it's really treat people fairly, and then also make sure that whatever you're telling people is correct, it's consistent with the law, and that they that it is reasonably understandable. Because I'm not being fair to you if I offer you something and I don't explain all the downsides. So for example, if I say, David, we'll defer your payment for 90 days or 180 days, but I don't tell you, but eventually you have to pay that payment back. It's very risky that a consumer is going to hear that and not understand the consequences of payment and that that money still that money wasn't waived, it was deferred. And, and you're saying these agencies are already keeping an eye on how how you all plan to handle these deferrals. You, you can't. You I would can't. say I would say that there are there are several states who are very interested in how various mortgage servicers are handling borrower inquiries. I, definitely, I think that the CFPB is interested in that. I think it you know it's it's part of their role in providing oversight to those entities. Let's talk about the CFPB. CFPB is a, a new entity. You might just want you know to tell our our listeners again. I mean, C, CFPB is a product again of 2008, and maybe you could elaborate a little bit on how things changed, how people thought the CFPB was going to act, because of course Elizabeth Warren was one of the uh, one of the uh, uh, originators of the idea of a CFPB, uh, and and how it's actually functioned uh, since its formation. You know, it's funny because I, I have a begrudging respect for the CFPB. I think that's in part because of my, you know, liberal uh, pro-consumer views from my childhood and, and young adulthood. And it's also because I'm a consumer as well as, say, an industry person, right? But the idea before um, before the CFPB existed, and I'll, I'll just give you an example. When I was a young lawyer, I used to go around to speak to loan officers typically when I was at City and and give them training on compliance. And, you know, the, the problem was, you know, certain regulations like truth and lending were drafted and enforced by the Federal Reserve legal staff. Others, like RESPA, were enforced by the Department of Housing and Urban Developments. Others, like the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, were enforced by the Federal Trade Commission. So as a consequence, you've got a lot of different views and you had all kinds of different views. The regs, the definition of the word application, for example, had like, you know, credit application had like four different terms depending upon which agency and which reg that you were talking about. So the one of the benefits of the CFPB is that you now have one agency 
which is drafting the regs and providing the uh, commentary and also enforcing both in terms of enforcement actions and in terms of examinations, these regs. And I think that's that's extremely helpful. I would also say the CFPB has been very groundbreaking in terms of getting information out to people. And you know, I can't tell you, and I've referred you to the website before, David, there's an enormous amount of valuable information on their website. And it's better than any, to my estimation, and again, I, I'm hoping I'm not gonna get the wrath of the OCC or the FRB or anything like that, but I think it's better than any other agency has ever done. And you know, I have I've referred non-lawyer friends that have a question about something to that website, and you know, people have gotten the help they needed you know, including my sister, and so <laughs> uh, who's a, who's a doctor and very not very not uh, law sensitive, but but so it's been very good that way, and and you know I think everybody ends up with a bone to pick of one sort or another with anybody who's enforcing the laws because if you end up on the wrong side of an enforcement action or an examination or there's a new interpretation of a regulation which means you have to change the way you've been doing business for a while that's not something that that people like but i i still think it's a better organizational framework than existed prior to the creation of it and speaking of tone of enforcement and the, the level of enforcement, et cetera, you know, we've been through, obviously, Obama and the formation of the CFPB and Cadre, who is uh, obviously very, very pro-consumer. And then we've got a, had a new administration, Trump. Yeah, we, have, uh, we now have uh, Craninger, who's there. Yeah, and different, you know, Trump certainly have a different direction in terms of these kinds of issues. Have you witnessed any changes in the way the CFPB takes on its responsibilities? Yeah, it's really it's that's a, such an interesting question, David, because everybody said when uh, Ms. Craninger was given that position that there was going to be this dramatic change in the CFPB, and boy, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen them become you know more litigious. I haven't seen them become more aggressive, but I haven't seen them become any less either. Of course, you never know what didn't happen. You know what I mean? In other words, it's impossible to know what might have happened had a very very pro consumer person been in the role. But in my view, and again, you go back to that website and you see they're still going after people and they're still bringing enforcement actions and they're still getting consent agreements signed. So I, I, I just haven't really observed a big change in it. But like I said, you know, we're, you're trying to prove a negative. You're trying to prove you know, what would have happened had someone different been there. And that's very hard to do. And in addition, it may be more difficult for me because I tend to be in the middle of these things. And, and you know, it, it doesn't seem different to me because, you know, involved in, in representing a, an entity that's regulated by the CFPB. But I think they're, I just, I'd have not observed any significant difference in any way. Interesting. All right. Well, I'm going to ask you to put on your uh, prediction hat. Assuming the administration changes, do you predict any changes with, with the way enforcement issues are going to be handled? Well, I, I'll, I'll make one prediction, and that is I don't know how much longer uh, Ms. Craninger will be in that role. And it might end up just being something which is for optics, right? But I think there might be a temptation to remove her. Uh, it's probably not going to be the, you know, the first job that, that a new administration is going to do when they come into office. But you'll have a changeover at Treasury and other, and other agencies. And I think there's a chance you may get somebody who is more traditionally viewed as a as a uh, pro-consumer person than she is. I, I, that's that's one prediction. I, because I believe that the COVID situation is going to result in regulatory action, I think there are going to be people who are going to point to that increase in regulatory action and say, ah, yes, you see, it's because President Trump is gone. Now there's President Biden. And so they're being more aggressive. Again, it goes back to the, you know, you, you've got two parallel histories, right? And I don't know that you wouldn't end up with the exact same ultimate outcomes. Because let's remember, I mean, the, the, the CFPB is still exists in a context of, of a judicial process. And so there's limits on them, uh, just as there's limits on any federal agency, right? I think that's literally impossible to predict. And even when we get into it, you know, I can I can imagine now, again, if we do this podcast in 18 months, you're saying, Craig, look at all the increases in regulatory actions by the CFPB. Don't you think this is because 
you know, there's now commissioner, insert the uh, the name of the new commissioner, right? And my answer will be, well, David, you know, we had a giant pandemic that led to all sorts of problems. And I think this is much more a reflection of that than the person that's at the CFPB. Now, you know, people that were big fans of Secretary Cordray, they may, you know, view this differently. But that's kind of how I see it. I, I just don't see much of a difference. And I don't think that there's going to be that much of a change. Because let's also remember that an awful lot of the people who are in within the rank and file and that are in middle management positions there are, you know, were around when Mr. Cordray was there. And so, you know, it's not like every single person resigns. You have an entirely new different department with people who have a completely different mindset. So long way of saying, nope, I don't think anything's going to change. It's going to be the way it's going to be. Okay. All right. Well, going back, I think there's one one important lesson you, you stated, but I just wanted to let you repeat it in words of one syllable, which is, you know, how best would you advise regulated institutions, particularly regulated financial institutions, to avoid getting into trouble? Yeah. I mean, look, it, it, it goes down, as I said before, to sort of the old golden rule we all learned in childhood, right? Be fair with people. Don't take unfair advantage of people. And anytime you're giving information to a consumer or you should give information to a consumer, make sure that it's understandable. And um, that's not as easy as it seems. You know, I mean, I remember, gosh, 20 some years ago, uh, one state passed, uh, I'm not going to call them out, but one state passed a plain language law, which led to an enormous amount of confusion about what is plain language, what's not plain language, and all sorts of loan documents were changed over. And, you know, there were enforcement actions and all sorts, uh, lots, mostly civil litigation, frankly, about whether something was, was uh, plain language or not plain language. So, you know, it's something of an art to make sure that when you're sending correspondence or having us writing scripts for your customer service people that it's understandable to a reasonable person right and let's not forget that some of the regs for example the FDCPA have a least sophisticated consumer standard right and so you're you're not writing something for a professor of business at UCLA you're writing something for an ordinary person so make sure it's understandable and, and I can't overstate the being fair, you know, don't offer products that don't have reasonable benefits to a consumer, you know, don't take unfair advantage of consumers, try to, and particularly when you're dealing with issues that relate to a consumer's home and there need to be, they need to be able to have the ability to, to do a workout. It, it's critical. It's critical that you take whatever steps you can to help that person retain their house. I can't overstate that. Gone are the days where you can simply say that ah, you're 60 days past due, you know, better start packing. Those, <laughs> those days probably never should have existed, but they're certainly gone. And to the extent they existed in 2010, the, uh, you know, various laws that came out of the last crash pretty much put the, uh, the sword through the heart of that sort of stuff. Yeah. And CARES Act and these other regulations are really changing that 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 approach i think well you've got a sprawling empire that you have to look over you've got these individual loan officers all over the country making loans uh you've got well, people we, we, call we don't we yeah. we actually don't but yeah. a lot of lenders do yeah and you did at calvary i guess like, course, I, i've yeah. dealt with some of them at calvary yeah, that's true. <laughs> so how do you keep that group in line, how do you how do you control a group that's that diverse in terms of you know various levels, various attitudes? How do you, how do you maintain you know the, the the be fair attitude to be consistently applied? Well, you know, again, this is speaking in my own opinion, but I think it really starts at the beginning in two ways. In one way, you need to be careful who you hire, right? Um, and you want to make sure you hire people who don't have sort of a negative consumer mindset. And you can get at that during an interview if the guy's saying, you know, whatever, if they, you know, if a customer doesn't understand too bad, I mean, that's somebody you don't want to hire. Also, you want from the very top down, from their CEO of your company down, you want that to be something that people believe and, and, and they hear it and they believe it. You want to make sure you have adequate training. Again, I generally don't want to talk about Rushmore, but holy cow, we have an enormous amount of training. And that's one thing I think we do very well. And training is critical uh, to ensure that you instill both a knowledge of the, the person's job function 
and the laws and regulations, but also the philosophy and view on these kind of issues of the company. So it's hire them carefully, make sure that you have a message within your organization coming from the top that you you try to help consumers. You don't try to, um, consumers are, are your customers, you wanna to try to help them. And then, you know, lastly, um, regular organized training. Fair enough, okay. And then let's assume something goes wrong. How, how does it usually start? Is it usually going to start with an inspection, some either by CFPB or request for information from state regulators? They give us some examples of how the storm starts and then how you handle it <laughs> once that storm begins. And well, it, it can ha- it can ha- it can come out of a lot of things. It can come out of a state exam. It can come out of a CFPB exam. It can come just directly from a, a an enforcement agency, right? And what many enforcement agencies, the CFPB uses this, a number of state attorney generals use this, is uh, CID a civil investigative demand and that's essentially a request for information you know and in my advice to everyone if you get one of these i don't care if you've been a lawyer as long as i have or not you need to hire a competent outside law firm and you know for one thing all these enforcement agencies are going to want documents presented in a particular way that a mortgage company or a auto finance company's legal staff is it's not going to be set up to do in addition, it's very, very helpful to have you know the external counsel that's had experience in dealing with these kind of agencies sort of give you a wake-up call and a realistic assessment. And one of the things I always tell people is as soon as you get something like that, um, a CID or a demand for uh, some other sort of demand for information, on the one hand, you definitely want to respond in a timely fashion, but you also want to be doing a risk assessment internally and trying to decide. They're not accusing us of anything, but they're very interested in these three areas. Are we doing things correctly in these three areas? Because it's an awful lot better for you to know it where your weakness is rather than have the regulatory agencies pointed out to you. I, I think it's also very helpful very early on to open up the channels of communication with the opposing party, you know, be extremely cooperative, you know, be transparent with them, make it very clear to them that you're not trying to hide anything, that you want to work with them to resolve the issue and avoid becoming contentious because that, that that's not productive. It's not productive at all. And, you know, you have a, a significant duty of candor and, you know, don't try to take shortcuts with discovery. Now, on the discovery issue, David, you and I have talked about this before. If it is a significant investigation, one in which you're going to be producing, for example, lots of emails, lots of phone calls, you're going to need some kind of a vendor to help you with that because you're not going to want to pay law firm rates to review 300,000 emails. And organizing the emails, organizing the phone calls, all of that stuff requires a lot of work. And sort of my advice to people is be very careful about the vendor that you that you select and look at more than one. Because A, if they screw something up and, for example, they don't properly execute search terms and you have to do a second search, you've just doubled the cost of compliance with that subpoena or that CID. You know, you want the agency that's doing those searches to do it correct the first time. Because, you know, there's no guarantee there. You're not going to get your money back. You're just going to have to pay to have a second search done. And then you're going to find yourself delivering documents to the agency, uh, you know, perhaps out of time or do a second uh, uh, drop. And, you know, it just doesn't look good. But I think that's sort of a Cliff Notes version of my suggestions for anybody that's, that's, and I, let me add one point, and that is one of the things that particularly the CFPB, but other agencies as well, like to see is that you've got information about issues being escalated through wherever they come in, through executive management and on the way to the board, right? So... If something like that happens, you need to make certain that you're going all the way up to your board and keeping them aware. Now, obviously, a board person doesn't need to know at a highly granular level, but look, they need to know about the nature of the dispute, the nature of possible concerns, et cetera. And, and it's it's very important that they be aware of that because it's, you know, you, you don't want something like this. And, you know, I always think that my, if I was a CEO, the worst thing that could ever happen to me would be that my internal lawyer handled a major investigation with the state attorney general or with the state banking department or the CFPB, and now all of a sudden it's blown up and I didn't know anything about it. So, 
you know, that that continuity of communication about something like an investigation is highly critical. Two things. That, that raises really two, two good questions. One question in terms of hiring outside counsel, which I'm sure our audience would be interested in, is, you know, a lot of these regulatory enforcements in the financial area are new. And we're dealing with some agencies that are different, new, that we haven't been as active in the past. I and mean, one, maybe if, if you feel at liberty to do so, you might want to identify the states where you see the most active agencies. But then two, do, do you see white collar defense lawyers' skills in other areas as being transferable to, to this area? Or do you think you really need somebody who's sort of dealt with this agency before, been immersed in the financial services industry to, to get adequate representation? Wow, that's a that's a very big question. I'm going to not tell you which states I think have the uh, most aggressive attorney generals or <laughs> or uh, banking departments. Because quite frankly, I'm afraid if I omit someone, uh, they may be offended and become more uh, more aggressive. No, I'm kidding about that. I mean, I think it depends upon different states have different touch points, right? And obviously, some of the bigger states, which have sophisticated financial markets, have very sophisticated regulators. Some of the smaller states, nevertheless. You know, if you do X, you know, I can think of some of the uh, states like I'm in now, which uh, some people on the East or West Coast uh, laughingly refer to as a flyover states. Well, if, if you do certain things in in some of those states, you're going to find yourself, you know, in court pretty quickly. But I mean, there's a lot of factors to consider, David. The, the one caution I would give and, you know, is, is look, let's say you're at a small mortgage company and uh, the state attorney general of a, of a large state um, sends you a CID. Resist the temptation to call your buddy the foreclosure lawyer, and it's not against foreclosure lawyers. I have a high degree of respect for them. They're you know they're excellent at what they do, but they don't have the scale or the experience to be able to handle something like a major regulatory matter. Same thing with a guy. You know, some people believe that all lawyers are created equal. I think, David, you know, you, you've spent your career trying to prove that's not the case. But you need to hire a, a large law firm, you know, and it needs to be one that has a lot of different skill sets because these things can go in a lot of different directions and not necessarily in a straight line. So you may start out with something which appears to be simply a question of, you know, whether or not you complied with RESPA with respect to mortgage uh, loan modifications. And then it may also end up being, you know, a problem with the way that you compensate your loan brokers or your loan officers rather. And so it's it gets to be really inconvenient if you have an enforcement action and you've got firm X and then all of a sudden, well, it's kind of taking a different direction. Let's hire firm Y to handle these issues because firm X doesn't have anybody that does this. So the, the good idea is to hire a big law firm. Now, there are a small group of law firms that have a major practice in front of these agencies. And, you know, that gives them an edge insofar as they are familiar with the regs that are involved. They're familiar with the process, but and and that may be a perfectly valid choice. But another consideration is, do you want to be represented by a firm that has 20 other enforcement actions exactly the same with different companies that may have different interests and they may be taking different positions? You know, it, that's that's potentially, you know, uh, something something that you should you should carefully consider. And the yeah, the other thing that you need to be really candid, especially, you know, anytime you're even in a big law firm that has a big practice in this area and find out if they have the uh, bandwidth to do your case and to give it the level of attention that it needs, you know? Because again, if they've got 20 of these cases, they may be thinking that, well, you know, it, we, we're going to have an economy of scale here, so we don't need as many associates on this as we otherwise would. Well, your your interests and your approach to the case or your desired approach may be very different than the other entities. And it, it can be problematic if they don't have the bandwidth to approach the case the way you want it approached. And, you know, another factor is fees. Let's face it. You get into one of these things, it, it, the, the fees can be astronomical. I think that's why people want to get into them these days. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's always that, right? <laughs> yeah. 
Speaking of which, and in this connection, you know, being an outside lawyer, I mean, one of the most difficult things to do is deliver bad news, you know, to say, hey, listen, we got some big time exposure here and, you know, there, there's there's a real problem and we're going to try to fix it as best we can, but we got some real problems. Because doing that, you know, you don't want to per- be perceived by your client as being weak or defeatist. And, but at the same time, you want to be candid with the client about, about what, what, they're dealing with and I, and I suspect you probably face the same thing in dealing with your internal clients with the board and the CEO when you've got a problem that you, know, you don't want them you don't want to be the deliverer of bad news so g- give us some thoughts about how you you know a assess something to make sure it really is a problem in terms of you know criminal exposure, personal exposure for officers, or significant financial penalties? And then B, how do you deliver the message? How do you deliver it if you're an outside lawyer? And how do you deliver it internally? Well, a lot of it in terms of, uh, well, first, let me say that when you're dealing with the, and, and, and you and I have had over the years, these kind of things come up, but when you're dealing with an employee who may have either significant personal civil liability or may also be implicated as an individual in, the, uh, in an enforcement action, you have ethical duties, right? Um, and I think it's, it's incumbent upon external counsel to remind internal counsel where appropriate notices are necessary to those employees and where it's necessary to note to the employee that the company's interests may diverge from your interests and you may need to seek your own counsel. And that's just something I say because I, I think it's sometimes, you know, especially in a smaller company, we're all here in it together. Well, maybe not, depending upon how the how the facts go down, right? But in terms of, of, of how you, and, and again, it, it, the first thing well, obviously, you deal with you know the introductions with the uh, the uh, regulatory agency or the enforcement agency, and you begin working on um, getting all the things necessary to produce the documents they want. But at the same time, you're doing that, you you've got to do an assessment, and it's got to be a realistic assessment. On the one hand, you don't want to come off where you're saying, "Oh my gosh, you had two loans that this happened." Well, you know, two loans. I mean, you know that's unfortunate, but that's not a disaster. As versus Every single loan you've ever made in the state of California has this defect. That's a disaster. But you, you've got to do that analysis realistically. And then, you know, if there is a problem, you need to deal with that problem. The sooner you deal with it, the better. And if you really think there's a serious issue, you need to think quickly about whether or not you need to do some kind of mitigation. But in terms of how you answer the question, I think the advice I would give both internal counsel and external counsel is, do an analysis, make sure you're right, and then be um, very direct. Fair enough. It's worked for you. You don't get that. Uh... It's worked for me. In, in some cases, you know, you you may not want to uh, call your uh, client on um, Friday at six p.m. and say, hey, "By the way, I, I, I'm I'm amazed that the Justice Department hasn't kicked in the back door and started seizing boxes yet." But you should expect that any day now. Oh, I've got to get to my tea time. You know, I mean, <laughs> expression is also important too. Um, you know, I think if you're you know if you're an external counsel talking to internal counsel, a little bit of empathy is helpful. You know, I know you're not a bad guy, but we've we're very concerned about this because we found that. Yeah. Yeah, I remember you and I had worked with one of your CEOs who was not a good recipient of bad Who, by news. the way, is retired <laughs> and uh, is, is affiliated in no way with Rush Barlow and Management. But yes, I, I remember, well, I think, as I recall, I think he always liked you, um, David. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, we won't go there in terms of who was right or who wasn't. Um, so, and talking about penalties, we, we have, you know, I, I asked you earlier about, you know, nobody went to jail and, uh, you know, have things Well, changed. nobody went to jail last time, but some yeah. people did go to jail in the savings and loan crisis. So, I mean, it's, it's not unheard of for people to go to jail, depending upon what you do. Boy, I distinctly remember. I mean, I'm here in L.A. Remember Columbia Savings oh, and Loan? Yeah. Boy, or yeah. or that one in in what's it in Phoenix, uh, yeah. Lincoln, Lincoln yeah. Savings and Loan. I think that man got like ten years in prison or something. And that's really tough to be in your sixties, a multimillionaire, and doing hard time in an Arizona prison. Wow. Yeah, yeah, and that's where they had the FBI raid on the resort that he had the hotel or resort that. Yeah, yeah. So, 
Yeah, those days, I guess, are not over. It depends. Yeah, I, I certainly think, as I said before, if you're putting the federal government at risk for losing money, that's something that really is, is you know, look, they don't like it if you're doing something you're not supposed to do ever. But if you're potentially putting the federal government in a position where it's going to have to pay off claims, wow, that's that's really problematic. But, you know, but there's other consequences. You know, you and I have talked about this before. Yeah, I mean, for example, there are people who were in senior positions in companies that spectacularly imploded in the last crisis who have had difficulty or have been unable to get uh, licensed to do be executive officers of mortgage companies in the post-crash era because of things that happened at their prior entity. And I don't know if these are de facto lifetime bans or not. But, you know, if, if you get the, you get, you know, you, your company implodes, you leave a bunch of refinancing borrowers in the lurch, and two years later, you're trying to get a job as the CEO of another mortgage originator, there are going to be some states where people were particularly adversely impacted. And it's, they have an awful lot of discretion if you're a control person. And that means one of the senior executives that essentially has to be, their name has to be on the licenses, et cetera. Um, it, 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 they have a fair amount of discretion and they can say, yeah, you know what, Mr. Smith, no, no, Mr. Mr. Jones, excuse me, um, Mr. Jones, we're not going to let you be on a license because, you know, 5,000 people couldn't close their loan, their home purchase uh, loan because you guys just imploded and you should have managed the company better. I think a, a lot of that is has passed, but, you know, that sort of thing is not unheard of. And the other thing that's not unheard of is, and it's typically in very egregious cases, right? But as part of a settlement with the CFPB or the multi-state attorney generals or some other entity, certain individuals may, in fact, be required to agree never to take a job in a regulated financial institution again. And it's a lifetime ban. Well, that's, you know, if you're also getting fined, you're getting fined, you're losing your, your, the way you've been making money for a, uh, for the preceding years, that's pretty tough. Um, and that's a real risk, which is why, again, if you go back to my original uh, suggestions, be fair and be, you know, clear in your communications and cooperate with the uh, federal or state regulatory agencies. That's why, you know, um, because it, if you follow those kind of rules, it decreases greatly the risk that you'll have to sign something which will limit your future activities. So, so Craig, you know, we're involved in some situations with, uh, you know, individuals. Uh, we don't represent the company. We represent the individuals who are now confronted with regulators who are threatening to take their their licenses, and they don't think they've done anything wrong. And frankly, the the, the company doesn't think they've done anything wrong. And and I, what I wanted to do is get from you your thoughts on how how the company threads the needle there in terms of trying to support you know a loyal employee, but at the same time not enhancing its own exposure and or further aggravating the regulators. Yeah, this is such a, a, a quagmire, uh, David. And it really, I would, I would go back to the conversation I had when we talk about, you know, what happens once you've got counsel hired and you're beginning to produce documents for in connection with a, a, a CID or some other subpoena. Um, you got to do an evaluation, and and if it involves an individual consumer, you know, you're talking about lifetime bans, but listen, there are criminal penalties with some of these laws. For example, RESPA, you know, violations of uh, Section Eight of RESPA are, are are criminal penalties, and so it is not impossible that someone in the course of of doing their job could be accused of something which does have a, a criminal penalty. And for an in-house lawyer, it's the ultimate disaster. And one of the things I caution the lawyers that work for me and have worked for me over the years over and over again is it's very important that an internal lawyer make it very clear they represent the company, not individual employees. So if a loan officer says, well, I'm glad you're my lawyer, you kind of have to correct them and say, I'm the company's lawyer. You have to evaluate very quickly. You want to understand, do we think we agree with this person that they didn't do anything wrong or do we feel like they did do something wrong? And um, you and I have had several of these cases over the years, and it, it, it really is threading a needle. And it's something that I rely on on external counsel very heavily. You know, do we can we pay for them? And, and, and very often, depending upon it really depends upon the nature of the allegations you know you may want to support the employee but you 
don't want to create any kind of a conflict. So, you know, it ranges from let's enter into a joint representation agreement. And, and as long as our interests don't conflict, we'll have the same counsel. But if it conflicts, we get to keep the main counsel. We get to keep Perkins Coie. You get to go with, you know, some other firm. Um, and it goes from that to, you know what, we really need to hire counsel for you. And, you know, you and I've had cases, David, as you recall, where it's multiple employees, right? And so you have multiple employees. Well, what do you do in those cases? Because um, do you hire one law firm for all the employees? All of that is an individual fact-based analysis. And then there may be other circumstances where once you get into this thing, you find out that the employee did something, and mercifully, this is not something I've had, but you have an employee who did something extremely egregious. And you know you may want to cut that person loose. There are also considerations you have to make into this as to whether you know the person is an officer and whether under whatever state of incorporation the entity is incorporated, they're entitled to indemnity from the company or whether they're not entitled to indemnity. And you also, you know, again, you know, if, if the person's if it's very egregious, you don't necessarily want your defense to be to be associated with this person. You know, one of your defenses may be we told this person we gave Paul we had we had adequate policies and procedures to ensure they wouldn't do acts violate you know this provision of RESPA or that provision of some other law. They ignored those, did it, and if anything, we're a victim because we you know they were a loan officer and we paid them um, commissions based upon loans that were originated in violation of uh, federal law. So you may want to cut them loose. It's it's such a it, it's such a fact based inquiry. And there's so many things to consider, you know, and you don't necessarily want the person, to, you know, if, if, in particular, if the person is not highly culpable, you don't want to kick him to the curb because A, that sucks, and that's not the way anybody wants to be treated, but B, it also potentially creates a witness for the other side. So, um, boy, that is, um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a definitely loaded question, David. There we go. So I guess my answer is I call you and uh, uh, you and Marcus Funk or somebody else tells me um, what your opinion is. And then we make a decision based on that. But I, I like I, I really do think you investigate and try to figure out the culpability yourself of that employee before you make a decision. And that means you got to do it pretty fast. And then you have that that range of you have them represented by your law firm or all, all the way down to, you know, you 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 sort of cut ties with them and terminate them. All right. All right. So I got two two final questions for you, Craig. Oh, no. One, one is, um, all right, so we've got billions and billions and billions of dollars right now of accumulated deferred payments uh, with millions and millions of Americans who have been out of work for no fault of their own and uh, may have a hard time getting work to pay these deferred payments at some point in time. What what are you what are you all doing as a loan servicer to prepare for that? That's question number one. Yeah, and again, I I can't answer on behalf of Rushmore, but I can tell you generally in the industry, everybody is trying to figure out ways to avoid sending these people to foreclosure. Because if you start seeing a significant percentage of people who are in foreclosure, that's that's going to be such an enormous drag on the economy. I really think that the status of the economy for the next five or six years is really contingent upon how these loans are handled and how uh, how and the efforts that are made to prevent these folks from losing their homes. Because you know, you could replicate 2008, 2009 again, or it could be more like the Russian debt crisis of the late 90s, where it's something for a couple of years and then it's gone. And I don't know that anybody has the right answer, but in terms of mortgage companies, what I think mortgage companies can do is work with the investors that hold the mortgages and as much as possible, come up with ways to help people start repaying repaying loans. And it may be as simple as, David, as, as taking all these forbearances and deferring those payments to the till the borrower pays off the loan or or sells the property. You know, you know, I'm I'm not the smartest guy in the world. And I, I this is this one is a little bit it's a potentially a little bit more complicated problem. I think the key is trying to help people because I mean, I, you know, I think back about how many people have been affected by this, and I think just 
by the way you know my family uh, uh, my family functions now as versus how we function I mean we used to go out to dinner two or three nights a week every week right well we don't go out to dinner anymore well the the, the folks that worked at those restaurants a lot of people don't go out to dinner and that's had an adverse effect we don't spend as much money on gas I I, I think I mentioned to you a few weeks ago that I was stunned when I looked at how how much money I spent on dry cleaning because you know I wear a suit and a tie every day. Um, and I don't anymore. Now I'm 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 talking to you in in blue jeans and a and a shirt, right? But that's that was like three hundred fifty dollars a month. That's three hundred fifty dollars a month for something as mundane as cleaning my my shirts and my suits. And so when you that ripple effect is really mind numbing. And right now we've got we've got stimulus money that's been put into the economy that's sort of masking it. And so it's you know Katie bar the door when. We stop sending stimulus money in, and the economy's got to work on its own again. We simply can't have, you know, ten percent of the people in the country losing their home. That's just going to be a disaster. Craig, we really appreciate you taking the time to well, be with us today. Thanks for talking to me. It was fun. All right, you didn't. You got one, one last question though, which oh, okay. is, all right, who's better, the Beach Boys or the Beatles, and why? Well, look, you know, I'm an American. My family's been here since the 1750s. I have to go with the Beach Boys because, in my view, particularly their harmonizations were grossly underrated by comparison to the Beatles. And for that reason, I, I believe the Beach Boys were better. Plus, you know, hey, look, Brian Wilson had a connection to Charlie Manson. I, I'm not aware of any serial killers who had a connection to the Beatles. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, good. All right. Just shows we've got a smart, talented, thoughtful guest today, and uh, he's got some varied, varied interests. Craig, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, we much appreciate your time. Okay. Thank you, David. All right. Be good. Bye-bye. This concludes this episode of White Collar Briefly. Please visit whitecollarbriefly.com, where you can subscribe to our blog and find additional updates on current white collar and compliance topics. White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini pod, copyright 2020 by Perkins Coie LLP. Thank you for listening.